0: And good morning. It's good to see each of you. You can open your Bibles to John chapter 19. We're going to pick up in verse 16. And we've looked at this week the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And if you've read it, in fact, I'm reading through the Chronological Bible this year. And as I read through the Chronological Bible, you get it in all four Gospels when you get to the crucifixion. And that's when you get the whole picture of all that took place at Calvary. What we see here then is that Jesus was handed over after his trial before Pilate that we looked at last week to then the Romans to be crucified. Let's pick up in verse 16. So he then handed him over to them to be crucified. They took Jesus therefore and he went out bearing his own cross. Now this would be the cross beam and those who were being crucified would carry it. It could weigh as much as a hundred pounds. So after being flogged, beaten as he was. I'm sure he had lost already a lot of blood, was in a weakened condition. And we know from one of the other gospels that Simon of Cyrene was actually taken and and he carried his crossbeam the rest of the way to Golgotha. They got to the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. So we have Jesus Christ being crucified between two thieves. We know that this is also a prophecy from the Old Testament, that he would be crucified with transgressors, with other sinners. And he is, we know, the center cross with a thief on each side. Pilate had a placard made to go over the cross of Jesus Christ. And we see that in verse 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, so that all who passed by would be able to read who he claimed to be. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. We see here that he is the king of the Jews. He claimed to be because he is. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. As we move on in our chapter 19, we see that the soldiers then, as was prophesied in the Old Testament, cast lots for Jesus' clothing. Verse 23, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus, were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. We know that John later moved to Ephesus, and as tradition would tell us, there is actually a gravesite for John and for Mary at Ephesus. At that time, Jesus' brothers were not believers. So that is why Jesus, even from the cross, in his agony, was caring for his mother. Verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. And a jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop, and they brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. If you'll look at your handout, you have the seven last words of Christ from the cross. And as we look at all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were able to put together exactly what Christ said from the cross. We can see the first thing he said was, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. In the midst of being crucified, the only one who never sinned, who did not deserve to die, Jesus was able to look at the very ones who were crucifying him and say, Father, forgive them. So he's interceding on their behalf, forgiving them for what they've done because they truly didn't understand. And then he said to the thief beside him who asked him to remember him, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. What did Jesus say? Today you will be with me. In paradise, So we understand that it's appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment, because literally to be absent from the body is to be present before the Lord, to either as, his, as a believer, as a child of God, to enter into all that he has prepared for us, or to be cast out into the outer darkness. Then Jesus said, woman, here's your son, and son, here's your mother. The next thing he said as he cried out, and I listened to a powerful message by Tim Keller recently on the crucifixion, and he said, really, our translators do not do justice to this. He screamed in anguish. It was beyond really what it says in Scripture as he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first time in all of eternity, Jesus Christ was separated from the Father, Bearing our sin in his body on that tree. And he cried out in anguish. And then he said, I'm thirsty. Just enough vinegar to wet his mouth so that he could cry out that one word to tell us, it is finished. Paid in full. It's exactly what they would do when a bill was paid in the times of Christ. It would be stamped with that one word, to tell us, "I," meaning the debt had been paid, which is exactly what Christ did for us. And the moment that debt was paid, then he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he gave up his spirit. We know that Jesus Christ willingly laid down his life for us. He told us in John that he had the authority to lay it down, and he had the authority to take it back up. He willingly laid down his life for us. He died in our place. Then we pick back up in John chapter 19, and we see what happened to the body of Christ. It says, In the Jews, because it was a day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So we know he's being crucified the day before Passover at the same time that the Passover lambs would be being sacrificed at the temple. So the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first man and the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission So he came and took away his body, no longer a private (laughs) follower of Jesus Christ or a secret follower, because now he's come out in public and he's asked for the body of Jesus Christ. And the body is given. And Nicodemus, who had approached Christ at night, remember in John chapter 3, comes with Joseph of Arimathea, and he came to him and bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since a tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. At the end of your handout, you have 12 prophecies from the Old Testament about the crucifixion, the death of Jesus Christ. THIS IS NOT AN EXHAUSTIVE LIST, IT ISN'T ALL OF THEM, BUT IT'S A SAMPLING OF THE PROPHECIES IN THE OLD TESTAMENT THAT POINT TO THE CRUCIFIXION OF JESUS CHRIST, AND WE SEE HOW HE FULFILLED EVERY SINGLE ONE DOWN TO EVERY DETAIL. We know Jesus himself said not one word of the Old Testament would fail to be fulfilled. Not one word would fail. In fact, every jot and tittle, every piece of a letter would be fulfilled because all of Scripture is inspired. It's literally God-breathed. And God's Word always accomplishes what he sends it out to do. So Christ perfectly fulfilled these prophecies of the Old Testament. Now, when we think about what happened to Christ. And we look at the Old Testament and understand that all of Scripture literally points to the crucifixion of Christ, of him being the second Adam who would do what the first Adam was unable to do. It seems so clear when we look in Scripture. And yet today, in Christianity even, we have those who call themselves progressive Christians that have strayed from the truth of God's Word. It's not palatable to them. And I just finished reading a book this week that's excellent by Alyssa Childers. I have recommended her podcast to you guys a couple of times. This book, Another Gospel, is actually exposing progressive Christianity and basically showing us how it does not line up with the truth of God's Word. In fact, we know Christ died for our sins. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4 tells us, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection are central to Christianity. We know that is the focal point of all that we believe. What Christ did for us is literally called penal substitutionary atonement. We owed a there's a penalty for our sin, and we owed a debt we could not pay, and he atoned for our debt. He took our place. He's our substitute. There are those in the progressive Christian movement who would actually call this, in fact, they're appalled by it, they call it cosmic child abuse, that God would, would require the death of his son. But obviously this is a belief that they have created outside the authority and the clear teaching of Scripture creating for themselves a God more like man than the God who has revealed himself to us in his word. There are some truths that Alyssa included in her book that I've included on your handout as well that we're going to look at just briefly because these are also basic understandings of Christianity, that we are all fallen image bearers. The scripture is very clear that all of us have sinned, that all of us fall short of the glory of God. No one has lived perfectly. Christ is the only one who was able to do that. We also know that sin separates. We know it from Genesis because when Adam and Eve sinned, what happened? They immediately covered themselves to hide from each other and then they hid from God. Sin separated them because they died spiritually and they were no longer able to connect with God the Father spirit to spirit. Because the consequence of death of sin is death. In fact, God told them that in the garden. He said, if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. They died first spiritually, and then eventually they died physically. We know that Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages or the paycheck of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Jesus, God incarnate, died in our place. That's what we just read out of 1 Corinthians 15, three, that in accordance with Scripture, Christ died for our sins. He paid our sin debt. We weren't purchased with perishable things like silver and gold, Peter tells us, but with the precious blood of Christ. He satisfied the wrath of God. Christ's passion and death occurred in accordance with the will of God. That's exactly what Scripture tells us. It was God's will. In fact, what did we just... Here, when Dana talked about John 3.16, the scripture that so many people know, even if they don't really understand the gospel, they know John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he what? He gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. That life is given only through Christ. And Jesus satisfied the wrath of God, he reconciled us to God, and he willingly laid down his life for us. It was the plan from the beginning. What did John the Baptist say when he first saw Christ? Behold the Lamb of God who will be what? Slain for the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who will lay down his life for us. I like this quote from Melissa's book. She said, God looked on the evil and sin of the world, stepped into his own creation and took our sins upon himself to effectively end sin and evil forever. In fact, for those who struggle with the wrath of God, You need to understand this. The wrath of God is not a divine temper tantrum triggered by erratic feelings of offense and hatred. The wrath of God is not petty or spiteful. It's the controlled and righteous judgment of anything that opposes the Lord's perfect nature and love. We should be very thankful for the wrath of God. The wrath of God means that there will be justice for the victims of the Holocaust. The wrath of God means that ISIS won't get away with its atrocities. The wrath of God means that one day all evil and sin will be quarantined and that those who have put their trust in Jesus will be entirely separated from wickedness and safe from the clutches of suffering and corruption forever. God's wrath exists because he is love. You know, in Isaiah 53, we have some prophecies about the Messiah. I want you to listen to... 53, 4 through 6. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And then down verses 10 through 12 in Isaiah 53. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering. And then eight times in the future tense... God is prophesying through his prophet Isaiah that the Messiah would see certain things. He says, "...he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many." Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. There's one of those prophecies, numbered with the transgressors, crucified with thieves. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. And we saw Christ on the cross interceding even for those who were crucifying him. So we see the prophecies of Christ in the Old Testament that point to the fact the Messiah was promised to do what? Crush the head of Satan. Jesus himself was crushed to be able to crush our enemy and to do away with sin for all of eternity for all who will believe. This is the story of God's Word. This is the narrative of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. In fact, it's all about creation, fall, redemption, and restoration all throughout the Scripture. And we see how from the very beginning, God had a plan. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. But God obviously deemed us worthy or it worth it to create us. He created us for relationship and his desire from the very beginning has been to dwell with us. Salvation itself is a beautiful picture of the goodness of God. In fact, let's think this through. I introduced this concept last week at the end of our study on Christ's trial before Pilate. And when we think about the goodness of God, and we go back to Genesis 1 and 2, and you've got this kind of lined out for you on your handout. In the beginning, God created, and we see that God called everything he created good. God created Adam and Eve in his image, and what did he say of them? He declared them very good. So we know from the very beginning that God is good, and he only does good. But he only gave them one prohibition, and that was the tree in the center of the garden. He said, you can eat freely from all the trees in the garden except this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because on the day you eat from it, you will die. Adam and Eve had good. They'd not known evil. It's hard for me to fathom not ever having had a negative emotion, not ever having been separated in a relationship, not ever knowing what it means to fear, to experience guilt or shame, and yet Adam and Eve had never experienced it until the day they listened to the voice of the enemy and began to allow their reason to take them away from the truth of God's word, which we see is exactly what happens in liberalism and in legalism. We need to go back to God's word. What did God say? But she listened to the voice of the enemy and she looked at the fruit and it looked good. And if it would make her wise, she took from the tree and she ate and she gave to Adam who was with her. And immediately they realized they were naked and they were ashamed. And they hid themselves, covering themselves from each other and then hiding from God in the garden. But we know God comes looking for us when we're hiding, doesn't he? In fact, it's a beautiful parable that Jesus told about the sheep and the 99 that the shepherd will leave to go after the one. I'm so grateful that God comes after us, that it is his loving kindness that draws us to repentance. And we see the beauty of his loving kindness from the very beginning. And even in the midst of pronouncing upon them all that would take place because of their sinful choice, God gives us the first messianic promise in Genesis 3.15. And he tells the serpent that he would bruise his heel, the seed of the woman, but that the seed of woman, the Messiah, would crush him his head. So we have a promise from the beginning that sin and evil will be dealt with. God in his tender mercy killed an animal that he had created, shedding the blood of the innocent on behalf of the guilty establishing from the beginning that it would take the shedding of the blood on behalf of the guilty to cover our sin. And God himself made clothes for Adam and Eve out of those skins. And then he took them out of the garden, sealing the way back in, lest they reach out from the tree of life and eat and forever be in that sinful and separated condition. We know God chooses Abraham to be the lineage through whom the promised one would come. And he gives Abraham a vision and an understanding. In fact, he takes him outside and says, look up at the stars in the sky. And if you can number the stars, you can number your descendants. Because your descendants will outnumber the stars. And you are going to be a blessing to the nations. And so after we get through the patriarchs and we get the Israelites in Egypt after 400 years, God raises up a deliverer. Now the people are a large enough group to be able to come back and actually possess the land that God had promised to Abraham. And we know the story of Moses leading them out of Egypt and the ten plagues and the parting of the Red Sea and all the miracles that they experienced. And Moses is up on the mountain getting the commandments of God and the... the um, all the measurements and the specifications for the tabernacle. God's giving it all to him. And what happens? The people rebel, because he's been up there for 40 days, and they see the fire on the mountain, and they don't know what's happened to him. And so what does God say to him? Your people that you brought out of Egypt, it sounds like Steve and I, when our kids were disobeying, I would say, your kids need you to do something, and he'd say, your daughter's doing something. Um, All all of a sudden, they become the other persons, don't they? And the Lord said to him, your people that you brought out of Egypt are disobeying. And so he goes down and finds. What are they doing? They're worshiping a golden calf. They're wanting to go back to Egypt so quickly, they're reverting back to their old ways. And we know that judgment that took place, Moses goes back up on the mountain, and God is meeting with him again, and the Lord has told him, I'm not going to go with you, I'll send an angel with you, but my presence is not going to go with you because my holiness would consume you because they are a rebellious and a stiff-necked people, which we all are. And yet Moses pleads with the Lord and says, Do not lead us from this place unless your presence goes with us. And so God says, my presence will go with you. And what does Moses boldly ask the Lord? Lord, in Exodus 33, show me your glory. And I love the response of the Lord. He says he will, and I will allow my goodness to pass before you, and I will declare before you my name. God is good, And he only does good. And his glory is his goodness. And his names reveal his goodness. He has progressively revealed himself to us through Scripture, through his names. And God allowed his goodness to pass before Moses. Well, what do we know about the goodness of God when we get to the New Testament? We've just been studying it as we've been studying the Gospel of John. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was there in the beginning. He was the one through whom the Father spoke all that we know into being. And then verse 14 in chapter 1 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld what? His glory, His goodness. <laughs> we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace grace and truth. We beheld his goodness, and it was his goodness that would take him to the cross. It was his goodness that was so offensive to sinners. In fact, Jesus healed on the Sabbath. He called forth the dead by name, and it was when he called Lazarus forth that the religious leaders then met, and exactly what they said was, from that day on, they planned to kill him in John 11, verse 53. They planned to kill him because of his goodness. His goodness, the glory of God that all those around experienced, but only those who had hearts turned toward God could actually see his goodness and his glory and be drawn to him in salvation. Oh, how we should ask for eyes to see and ears to hear so Jesus goes to the cross. The light of the world darkened by our sin. And you have scriptures that back up all of these. We know that Christ was <clears throat> put on the cross at approximately 9 o'clock in the morning. And at noon, everything was black. The sun was dark. There, it was dark from noon to 3 until Jesus gave up his spirit. You know, Revelation tells us there's no need for the sun or the moon in the new heaven and new earth. Because the lamb is the lamp of heaven. Jesus is the light of the world. His goodness is his glory, which glows and illumines all around him. The goodness and glory of God bore our evil in his body on that tree. And the moment he gave up his spirit, when he committed his spirit to the Lord and said, "It." is finished. Scripture tells us the veil was torn from top to bottom, forever opening the way into the holy of holies of the universe. And Hebrews, that beautiful book in the New Testament that is such a commentary of the old, gives us further insight into Christ and all that he did for us. In fact, Hebrews 9, 11 and 12 tells us, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Now think with me, what happened on that day of atonement? The high priest would go in with the blood of the sacrifice and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat and their sins would be covered for yet another year because those sins had been confessed over the head of the scapegoat who had gone out into the wilderness, separating them from their sins. And then the animal that was sacrificed, the blood was taken in, applied to the mercy seat to cover their sins. But it had to be repeated year after year after year, but not so with the sacrifice of Christ in fact in verse 24 in Hebrews 9 it says for Christ did not enter the holy place a holy place made with hands a mere copy of the true one but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus Christ entered the tabernacle, the throne room of heaven, the one not made with human hands. And he applied his blood, not the blood of an animal sacrifice, but his blood to the mercy seat, the throne of heaven, covering forever our sins sacrificed once for all. And what does Hebrews chapter 1 tell us about our savior? Listen to this. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, of his goodness and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This Jesus Christ, God incarnate, the second Adam living the sinless life we were created to live, the life we could not live, and who died in our place because the wages, the penalty of sin is death. And we know the Old Testament points to the picture of Calvary at Passover. That's what Passover was all about. When the blood was applied to the houses and the death angel passed over, it was because death had already taken place there. That's what happened at Calvary. When Jesus died once for all, his blood, once applied to our sin, washes us as we sang, white as snow. Our sin atoned for. Our debt paid. And it is Jesus Christ, the one through whom all that we know was created, who literally upholds it, Hebrews 1.3 tells us. He is upholding it all. As vast as this universe is, he upholds it. This is the one before whom we bow when we come for salvation. It is not a God that we've created in our image. It is not a God that we're inviting to come into our life to be our assistant or a co-pilot. It is the creator of heaven and earth. God who has revealed himself through his word has come in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And when Jesus went back to heaven, he gave us the Holy Spirit who comes to bring our spirits back to life because we've been dead in sin. He regenerates us and then he comes to live within us through his spirit. And Jesus said, I'm giving you the spirit that he might teach you everything you need to know. We've been given the spirit to illumine for us the word of God that we might know his Goodness, and that his goodness might be manifest in us. If you've never come to Jesus Christ, the way to God the Father, if you've never bowed the knee to him and called out to him and asked him to forgive you of your sin, your sin that separates you from him, my prayer is that you will do that right now. That as the Spirit of God is revealing to you your lost condition that you are separate from him, separated by your sin, if you will just confess that, ask Jesus Christ to forgive you, he will. He will save you, and he will come into you. He will bring your spirit back to life, and he will come to indwell you, but he comes to take over. You no longer belong to yourself because you have been purchased. You have been bought with the price of his precious blood. And the moment you surrender to him, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Meaning one day you will see him, either through the doorway of death or in the rapture. You will stand before him and your your eyes will see him. And you will hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord prepared for you before the foundation of the world. Are you ready? Are you ready to meet Him? Are you ready to surrender? He is Lord. He is King. And He is returning. Will you join me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for the power of Your Word. We thank You for how You have revealed Yourself to us from Genesis to Revelation. Truly, history is Your story. The story of creation, fall, redemption, and the ultimate restoration that we will experience one day in your presence. And Father, if there's anyone listening or anyone here in this room that has never made you Lord, has never cried out to you for salvation, I pray that right now they will. God is looking at your heart. Confess to him your sin. Ask him to forgive you and to come in and make you his child. His spirit will bear witness with your spirit that you belong to him. And then, Father, would you help each one of us, new believer or seasoned saint, to walk every day with an awareness and a sense of urgency, sharing the gospel with all we come in contact with, because truly no man comes to the Father but through you. Lord, we offer you our praise this morning. We thank you for the cross. We thank you that that is the reason Jesus was born. He came to die, to take our place, to pay the debt we could not pay, that we might be with you forever because that has been your desire from the beginning, that we might dwell with you. How we love you and praise you and thank you.